What will you do first? Uh, New Deal or Eurovision? Uh, well, because of course Eurovision and New Deal were on the same day, so my Twitter feed was a Eurovision. Listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And coming up in this episode, we have an exclusive for you. We have Angela Eagle giving her first uh, broadcast interview about her new book, A New Serfdom. And we also have Gavin Kelly from the Resolution Trust explaining why he feels optimistic about the future of trade unions. If he does at all. But first, (laughs) last Saturday, uh, listeners, as I'm sure you'll be aware, was a big day for the trade union movement and and, uh, a, a big day for the country generally, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we came 24th out of 26 in the Eurovision. I was thinking more about the uh, <laughs> the New Deal for Workers. <laughs> but look, look, let's get to the important stuff. Okay, not people's Eurovision. jobs, okay, not sh- their amount. Shuri, right, Shuri, yeah. did, did brilliantly, I think, inter- I mean, that, yeah, that, that guy could have, could have killed her or stabbed her or something horrible, but, uh, but, but basically did, did well to just to, to carry on. And the crowd went nuts, and everyone thought this is really great, very courageous and professional, and the rest of it, but it didn't translate into votes. Hang on, doesn't that sound like the trade union movement? Uh, well, um, uh, well, I kind of was drawing some parallels there. <laughs> so, so, on the line. I, I go for the lowest common denominator of a joke. Now, I mean, uh, I thought it was really funny on Saturday. My Twitter timeline was just this complete mashup of. New Deal and Eurovision and it, they really competed with one another about who was and I was like a New Deal for Eurovision or is this going to be <laughs> I think Eurovision we, as far as we're concerned Eurovision desperately needs a New Deal but kind of semi-seriously should Suri have picked yeah. up that offer to sing again yes because if she'd sung again then there, it's like two bites of the cherry the message gets through there are, I mean, you know, I don't want to stretch a point, but there are some parallels here in, ter- in, t- in terms of you've got to get, get a good message, you've got to ram it home, you can't assume you, your audience is with you. I agree. So moving on to the New Deal for Jobs. <laughs> I'll tell you what, New Deal for Jobs, I mean... Speaking re- of that. Speaking of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Good press coverage for a change. Really good press coverage, according to the TUC, that they had the most amount of press coverage that they've had for the last few marches that we've got. So that's a positive thing. That's a really, a really good point. I saw loads. I saw Francis on the news in the evening, and it did feel like there was an awful lot being said about it. And, and the messages were clear all the way through. You know, a better deal for workers, end exploitation. You know, end, end zero hour contracts. That that sort of stuff. You know, some very clear, consistent me- messaging. So I suppose the question the question now is 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 kind of like job well done, uh, TUC and affiliated unions and, mm. and everyone who took who took part. We're next. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the perennial thing for me, which is, I suppose, very West Wing type way of looking at it, I always think, you know, what's next? And I think part of that has is been because one of the most influential books I've read around organising is the Midwest uh, Organising for Social Change book. And, and the thing about that that I've taken forward, and I think we need to think about, is 
always where do you go next what action are you taking why are you taking it how does it help you build power how does it get you to the next stage in the campaign and the ask that you've got um and so it would be really interesting to see with how we follow this up and what kind of thought processes we've got in terms of what comes what comes next we've had a march now what well i mean there are a number of options here aren't there and it's, it'll be interesting to see which one has most traction which one which one is 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 pursued on the one hand you could say you use the march as a springboard you've got a clear set of demands widely disseminated now let's put them into practice can we generate can we the trade union movement generate coordinated industrial action around that set that set of set of demands really everyone would acknowledge that's really difficult a really difficult thing to to do a huge gap between marching on the streets and getting coordinated industrial action on the other hand I mean, I heard Hannah Reid from the, from the TUC many times on the radio over the, over the weekend saying, these are our demands, we hope the government is listening. Well, if the government's not listening, uh, then what? What do we do? I mean, I, I think there's a, something in all of this, thinking back to some stuff that Dave Ward from the CWU has, has said, which resonates with me, in terms of we need to address some of these issues as a movement, so as a a group collectively together and how do we talk about them at the same time using language that people can understand and have it be the sort of fundamental asks for us but also make that completely relevant to the industries and the members that we have as well so it's easy to kind of trip off your tongue and you can say what what we're looking for and how this relates to the world of work but you're right I think I think a common voice would be a fantastic achievement. A common voice around a clearly articulated, succinct, easily understandable set, set of demands would be a huge, a huge step forward for our movement. Yeah, but also that they've got to be winnable, I think. Yeah. Well, I think we have to win something. Well, we are winning stuff, aren't we? I mean, yeah, We are in the courts. We're winning in the courts. We're, I mean, you, you, look at the, you look at the Balper-Ryanair deal, we're winning when employers realise actually they need unions. We're winning... We're winning in the sense... I mean, that, what was striking about the media coverage was in the part... I can't remember another TUC demonstration where there has, there's been an absence of this snarky, snidey, you know, horrible unions, you know, disrupting people sort of, sort of approach, um, uh, which suggests that, as Gavin Kelly has said before, you know, there's managerial overreach and people are thinking, well, management's gone too far now. It's time for the pension to swing back towards working people and, and, and the organisations that represent them. But also, I think increasingly we're moving away from the narrative around unions that has been prevalent for a long time, around the 60s and 70s. And people don't see us anymore in that kind of vein. Well, only uh, only about 30% of people think unions have too much power as opposed to 80% in the, uh, at some point during the 70s. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think that maybe part of understanding why the narrative isn't so like winter of discontent or summer of discontent is because actually people are forgetting what winter of discontent really, or didn't even know it. I mean, I didn't experience the winter of discontent. Oh, you, 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 <laughs> you're just showing off your youth now, you are. I'll tell you what. I, I mean, I did, I was interviewed by a journalist ages ago and they were talking about, you know, the, the 70s and the early 80s. And, and I just said to him, well, that's not in my, I, I don't have that um, as part of my common consciousness around unions, as also somebody who didn't grow up in a trade union family. So we get into that point now where, Thatcher's children 
uh, having children who just don't have that narrative. Well, I mean, it's certainly true that, that we, there are, there's a lost generation, uh, perhaps like lost two generations, where the familial link of parents being in unions, therefore their kids know about unions and join unions and so on, is, you know, that, chain is, that chain is broken. And I really does, do think that, that's a, an, a hurdle that organisers have to, have to get over because there is no collective or, or there's, no, there's no particular firm view about what trade unions are, only grainy newsreel footage of the miners' strike or, or, or of bins, and bins not being collected during the winter of discount. I do, I mean, I do very much remember the late 70s and the early 80s. Listeners, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm telling you it's true. And, and actually, there are a whole set of complicated reasons behind what happened there yeah. and the way the government responded, the way the government... It was a classic internal conflict, this Labour government, of, of course, at, 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 the, at the time, that only with hindsight we can see that perhaps we didn't play the way we might have done. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Listeners, as always, we've been fascinated for your views on this. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk with what you think should happen next after Saturday's demo. And if you want to, what you think should happen next after the Eurovision debacle, though, I think, I think the former may be more interesting but than, we all than the know, latter. We all know the Danish should have won. Let's that's, that's all agree. That Listen, I, I, just, I just can't help thinking, 48 points for the UK. We've just, we've just brassed off so many people in that electorate. It's not surprising nobody votes <laughs> for us. That's a story for another podcast, I'm sure. Uh, let's get, let's get our, our first guest on. <laughs> That sounds terrible. We're delighted to welcome... First entrance. We're delighted to welcome Gavin Kelly from the Resolution Trust uh, to the podcast. Gavin made a great contribution to the Unions 21 conference uh, in April, where he said, you know, there are very real challenges for unions, but actually unions are starting to, to, to win again. So I'm really interested to hear what he's got to say to, you know, to substantiate that view, that the green shoots will flourish and become tall trees. So with us, uh, and we're very pleased to have him with us, is Gavin Kelly from the Resolution Trust Foundation. I always get confused. Trust. Resolution Trust. Trust. Used to run the other one. But, yeah. <laughs> In the same so, building, but yeah. different. Uh, thanks. Sorry. Okay. Gavin, okay. Gavin, welcome. Uh, and, and in particular, since we were last together at the Unions 21 conference, there's been quite a lot of consideration, I think, about the, the challenges that you set out that you felt the, the trade union movement set, particularly on the demographic challenge, Becky. Would you say that was at the top of the pile? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, just to almost take a step back a bit, that Gavin's presentation at conference was really uh, interesting, insightful. And aside from the usual graphs that we see, there were some ones that we we don't often see. And I think everybody in the room kind of sat up and looked at the percentages that we would need to recruit in order to stay uh, relevant at mm. the level that we're at, never mind them breaking sort of through that. Um, the Centre for Policy Studies, on I was going to say on the other side, but that's not quite what I mean, but uh, the Centre for Policy Studies had a paper this weekend which was about new ideas for the Conservative Party, but they did an awful lot of polling around young people. Mm -hmm. And it was really similar to the stuff that we've done around young people in terms of people think they don't trust political parties of any mm -hmm. persuasion around it. Um, but as their message was, uh, age is the new class. And so it got when I read that, it got me thinking back to this whole idea of a demographic challenge, mm -hmm. which you sort of kicked off your provocation about, really. Uh, well, thanks, and thanks for having me on. The idea that of ages the new class is definitely there's definitely something in there i yeah. should and i, I want to talk about that I, we should you know within any demographic with any cohort there are class issues yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and so i will say you know let's let's and anyone who wants to sweep over that is missing the point in a big way so there's definitely class issues within every generation but 
when you step back and look at voting patterns in, in the country, clearly something profound has happened in terms of this polarisation by age. Mm. That's not an original point, but it's there, and we're still coming to terms with what that means and, and how that will play out in the decades ahead. Will those mm. patterns solidify or <coughs> will people's voting behaviour change as, as they age? That's the big debate. But I think it struck me that those that same debate that we're having when it comes to politics, if you like, about how demographics kind of will play out and will transform potentially uh, political identities hasn't played out in the same way when we think about a crucial part of a economy and civil society, that of the union, you know, the union movement. Yeah. And I, I think most people who are involved in the labour movement would have a sense that, on average, trade union members are a bit older... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, typically, sure. yes. so I don't think that's a kind of breathtaking insight. I don't want to pretend it is, but I think when you actually analyse the data and you look at where the kind of the large bulge, if you like, of trade union membership is, mm. and then you play through the next decade based on, and, we've, and it's no great science to this, but we just look at kind of what's happened to union membership of different age groups over the last 30 years, and we've kind of rolled forward the recent trends. So the recent trends, not the collapse we saw in union membership in the 80s, but the recent yeah. trend over the last five years or so. And we're just kind of rolling that forward mm. from a lower level of union membership that we see today. Yeah. And what you see in large part because of this demographic sort of distribution of trade union members yeah. is a continued steady, it's not a collapse, it's a steady kind of relentless fall yeah. based on recent historical trends. And it takes you to a place where if you look at the entire workforce, quite often people look at kind of the percentage of employees. I actually think it's more useful to look at the percentage of the whole workforce because so many people are self-employed and so on. I think it's more meaningful. So at the moment, we're just over one in five of the whole yeah. workforce in the union. And based on recent history, we would expect us to be at about 16% by the end of the 2020s based on recent trends. And some people would say that's a bit optimistic. So there's no shocks there in terms of robots or yeah that's know, even before the robots or whatever, anything like that that's, that's so that's yeah, just yeah. assuming that we we're kind of gliding on the current default if you like that's sort of where we're sailing towards which doesn't mean saying it will happen but that's where we should be thinking thinking but, ahead to. but if that's conditioning our thinking as you say it, this is not <laughs> this is not new no no one should go ah, never had this before <laughs> i mean i mean the detail that that was in your presentation i think is new about the doubling the number of young members that unions need to recruit to stay still or the rest of it but but it, get, it gets, gets to a point doesn't it where you could say the decline is irrevocable you could say you know you could say it's, it, it's kind of terminal and therefore this is an existential issue but for, for trade unions and yet it's kind of is there any coffee strong enough to get people to wake up and smell it yeah well in a I, way I kind of feel that sometimes I think that's exactly right so one of the reasons we sort of you know, partly we're doing this just because we want to better understand where we're heading towards. Mm. But, you know, I have a, there's a mo another motive, which is to try and sort of liven up the discussion, the discussion because I think it desperately needs livening up. Um, and I think the general sense that, oh, well, yes, you know, members are a bit older, but it will sort of take care of itself and nothing dramatic will happen. Because if people get older, they'll start joining a union well, and that'll be what it is. Yeah, uh, you know, I just think we've got to actually day. look very clearly at this. Because, and, I, and I, in terms of kind of what's, I think, underneath your question, I do worry that there are, there is, you know, there's some sort of threshold below which, if you, if you fall below which, it's quite hard to get yourself back. Now, yeah. there is no magic number which says once you fall below 20%, yeah of the workforce being in the union, then you can't recover. But I tell you what, when you look around the OECD, 
it's very hard to find any country where union membership has fallen to that sort of level and then has recovered significantly. So that, that bounce back, you know, is very hard to do. And I think the lower you get, the harder it is. Yeah, and that yeah. is why, you know, that's why I think my worry, and it's a really weird worry, is that before we start having a conversation we need to have about thinking about new ways of organising, entirely new forms of trade union and so on, none of which I know that they have the right answers, but before we start having that open debate, which I want to have, we'll have to fall even further and it will become ever harder yeah. to rebuild. And that's... That's what I don't want to happen. Well, let, let's, let's start trying to, to generate that, that debate before we get to, yeah. to, that, to that, that point. And then one of the other points you made in your presentation was that the trade union sector roughly ha is a one billion pound, pound sector, and yet R&D expenditure is just, is just minuscule. Are there, are there comparators that you can, you can bring to bear of, of, of similar kind of membership-based organisations, membership-based sectors where that isn't the case. Yeah, but it's hard to think of kind of in the non-profit making sector where people organise R&D systematically in that yeah. way. But it's also the case that not many of them are diminishing in size as quickly as the trade union sector. So I think there's a kind of... Yeah, there's, there's less in, in incentive for them. To some, I think there's more of a burning platform for the trade yeah. union movement. I also think you know, it's actually it's a bit above a billion pounds a year based on the kind of standard measures of the income. So it's still, I mean, it's falling, but that's yeah. a significant scale. I know it's yeah. very distributed across lots of different organisations. It's not one homogenous <laughs> thing called, a, you know, the membership trade union. It's a very, it's a flotilla of different agencies and organisations. But that is a significant sector which is bound together by shared values of some sort and mm -hmm. some sort of shared interest in how the economy operates and so on. So there is a, a coherence across it, which I think means it is meaningful to think of it as a sort of sector um, and I and again you know unions don't measure and account for like something called innovation activity or R&D activity that's not yeah. how they report but I, you know based on my experience of talking to people in the movement over decades over this sort of thing there just isn't that much of it going on now there's lots that I can talk about I'm happy to talk about yeah. exciting things that you know which we all know are happening mm. in different parts of the union movement I'm the last person to bash that sort of stuff yeah, I want to celebrate yeah. it but it's small scale, it's incremental, it's piecemeal. I don't feel that there is a, an organised effort coming from the movement to sort of say, this is where we are heading towards. Yeah. We don't know exactly what the answer is. We've got to try out some different yeah, things yeah. systematically, evaluate them, and then take some of them to scale in a very ambitious way. So, and that takes resources. Yeah, it does. And it also takes a mindset and a particular <laughs> culture to do that yep. as well. And I think that that's something of the feedback that we've got from the unions that support Unions 21 is how do we create that climate in our unions where people feel like to take a risk isn't um, the end of their union life or yeah. it doesn't result in shame forever kind of more but also for union executives to understand when they're doing their kind of governance of a union you know how do you convince the board of the Royal College of Nursing to invest in the retail sector, you know, like retail organising. What What is it that we've kind of got to do to get people in that place? And I think that other, that's the other thing that you said, which has really resonated with me, was, is the systemic approach to it. Understanding why it worked and then thinking about how it can be replicated or not. Because when we interviewed... Matthew Taylor and he was talking about the RSA's approach to this now being able to understand every bit of a whole 
you know the body of work on something and thinking of the small changes that have a big impact yeah. i was thinking we don't have that culture in the union movement mm. of actually properly evaluating so we know why it worked and how it could right. be adapted usually what we say is we did it and it was a great yeah. success yeah yeah, yeah and it actually like mm, no it's, there's not, so uh, yeah so there's a question in there somewhere which is basically like how how do we get to that point like how would we convince union executives and union leadership that actually R&D in a particular way is really important yeah well there's, there's a, a lot in there let me just try and take some different <laughs> take parts of that like. <laughs> I mean I think the first thing is to raise the awareness of where we're headed yeah and it's a bad place I mean it's not you know and I've long been a bit sort of jaundiced about the extent to which unions have relied on merger mm. and I know a number of people senior people in different unions can say well our, our numbers are looking all right because yeah. we've now you know and it's like if you step back collectively and look where you're heading towards it is impossible if you look at it honestly to to, to feel optimistic about where we are so there is I think you do need to generate a sense of collective urgency mm. which I which I think you know I know is there and amongst some leaders and who feel it in a very real way but I don't I think is is really missing in some parts of the union movement. I think that, that's being honest about that. Mm. So I think there is, but that hasn't happened yet. So we need to generate that urgency. I mean, my own view is that if you want to get to a place where the union movement feels more confident about taking risks and making mistakes, and that's a difficult thing to do, you're spending members' money. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, this is a serious thing yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. Um, I think that there's different parts of that one is I think you, need to, you can't do all this behind closed doors you need to talk to members about where you're heading mm. and about what success looks like and the fact that different people in different countries have tried different things out and that's part of what a modern outward looking forward facing organization should be doing and mm. um, so I think kind of opening up about that and finding yeah. the right way of doing that and expressing it through union values is incredibly important I also think and again this is my own view talking to people in different countries who have tried to sort of think about ways of regenerating their own union movements it's very hard for unions to do in-house I don't mean to say there's nothing they can do in-house but I think some of the more difficult stuff or risk-taking stuff is better done slightly at arm's length yeah yeah um I you know you don't want the executives taking decisions on a kind of quarterly basis about how your innovation center which is trying out three different ways of trying to recruit or organize or use digital or whatever it is I think that's got to, I think, you know, clearly if there's union money at stake, people have got to take a strategic decision about deploying it, about what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I think you've got to then trust the people you put in to yeah, do yeah. things, some of which will unsettle and should unsettle existing unions. Yeah. I don't think there is a path towards the future I'd like to get to, which is going to be a kind of comfortable one for everyone, because I think that we will have to create new ways of doing things, which necessarily, mm. always and everywhere, create yeah. some waves. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's got to be part of the conversation, being upfront about that too. I think the really interesting thing is how do you persuade people in one part of the workforce who might be slightly better paid, slightly higher skilled, to use that sort of phrase, to see that part of that, just a subset of their union dues might be spent in a different part of the workforce with with a different age group in a a different situation. And that is a really hard thing. I think it varies. How hard that conversation is varies across unions, but I think it's really hard for lots of them. I always like the the story um, of the New Zealand Teachers Union, which has allowed some of its money to be used for organising fast food workers. And they kind of narrated this to their own members as these are our, you taught, these are your kids that you you taught. So this isn't some sort of switch of resource into an unknown area. This is an extension of your kind of moral 
sort of commitment yeah, that you made for your vocation yeah. to these people, to these kids, you're this is us continuing that. No, that's a kind of... But, that, but that's powerful. I mean, that, no, I I think that, that is a powerful... Yeah. and. I'd like I've got and goosebumps. Yeah, and there that are other ways it. of talking about that. There's, you know, and I, and I, and if you can't make that sort of moral leap, yeah, then we've got bigger problems than the one we're talking about today, frankly. And I actually think we have. I can imagine some of the people I know yeah. who do inspire me in the new movement, precisely talking about that. But they're going to have to sort of step up and do it. And some people don't like it. Some people say, "Why on earth are you talking about that?" But that is the test. And if you can't do that, if you're not willing to make that case, then I just don't want to hear you talking about solidarity because it's nonsense. I let Simon respond to that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll respond and say I don't disagree for a moment. No, no. Uh, because, be, and and it, it's not even a moral gap, a moral jump, if you like. It's a self-interested jump because yeah. you can't have pockets of collective bargaining, you know, para, you know, a, a, you know a, an oasis of collective bargaining in a desert of unregulated labour. You, you know, it's just, it just does not... It just does not work. Yeah. And that, you know, every unorganised worker drags down and is a threat to the terms and conditions of an organised worker. It's, you know, that's it's from the 1930s or the 1890s. It's, yeah. this, is, this is not new or rocket science. But what is, what is new uh, and, and is e challenging is sometimes it feels that people are so insulated in comfort zones that they have huge difficulty looking outside mm. and, act, and acting outside and, that, and that's that's the challenge I, I take it Gavin I mean that that's the challenge in terms it of is. Getting, persuading people of the urgency of the situation and the need to to do things differently it, it is and it's you know and there isn't there's no one you know there's not going to be some great strategy paper which sets out the what, what should be done differently because this is going to be the thoughts and activities of lots of disparate people yeah, yeah. who all you know coming many of whom will be trade union organizers and reps today mm. some of whom won't be and I actually think that, it's too easy for people who sit in think tanks or indeed in foundations to sort of say, well, look at the state of kind of the, the working environment for today's young people. Why aren't trade unions doing X? I think some of that, is a, you know, I do some of that myself and I think there's a role for it. But I tell you what, there's a complete kind of absence of initiative, I also think, from today's big foundations. And I, I don't want to, I'm involved in that world mm. and we're doing our own little thing belatedly. We should have done more earlier. But I mean, where, where, you know, we as civil society need to be saying, how do we collectively improve the world of work for today's year, across the board, but particularly mm. for young people, in my view. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is about trade unions, clearly, that they're the sort of yeah. central agency in that. But I also think other groups need to be coming together in new ways. And I've, I've been astounded since I've got more active in this area. There just wasn't a relationship. There's barely any relationship between the labour movement, large foundations, people in the tech community yeah. and actually there need to be there needs to be a fluidity between those things so you need people you need trade unions stepping up but you need other people stepping up too to create the spaces if you like the infrastructure yeah. which will allow new ways of trying to improve the plight of workers so when we um which on to that point when we were putting together our thoughts around some of the digital work that we're going to be doing yeah. the organizations that we went to for funding all said to us this is like the first time we've ever had a union-based body come to us and i was like is that a good thing is that a bad thing i suppose a bit of both but but then there was that conversation that we had to have with them which was why we were asking for money from them and not the union movement which was a difficult conversation to kind of argue as well because you also don't want to go well you know this organization's got as much money as you think and all that kind of stuff but, but 
what I have found is when we began that conversation, there was an openness, which I wasn't sure there would be. Yep. Uh, in certain, again, in certain pockets, I can't say every foundation and trust that I've been to talk to has been like, oh yeah, actually, let's give that a go. But it's not been a slam no, I think, in, my, in my face type thing. I and think I, in that from talking to that sort of issue, I think there's an awareness that there's a lot of people who fund stuff. We've been talking about young people's voice and young people's collective empowerment for ages and funding programmes. I'm sure lots of great programmes that I would fully support. Mm. But then you say, well, what about the world of work? Yeah. What are you doing with all that resource to improve the voice of the agency of young people in that domain of their life, which they tell us all the time. Well, you spend more, more of your time at work. You spend more of your time and you know, diminished expectations of success in them. People, people kind of fear for their mm. future. Not everyone, of course, not all young people, but a large subset. And they're like, well, you know, we don't really do work. Don't you need to do that? Yeah, yeah. And so I think, so I think there's a responsibility there, and I think there is a beginning of a change, which is mm. optimistic. I think we're a long way behind, perhaps for understandable reasons, we're a long way behind where some of the American foundations are who absolutely now see it as their responsibility to be trying to move into this space, but that is in part because their situation there is so much yeah. bleaker mm. than ours that it feels that much more visible and urgent. Uh, I suppose again, I just don't want us to have to get to that point yeah. before civil society mobilises itself, mm. as I think it should do, to be active in this space alongside. It's not usurping trade unions; that's that's not the role of foundations, clearly. But to be backing it, yeah. is, that is where some you know we don't trade unions need to be putting some of their money in. But I, I think there's other places we can be looking to too. And I've we, we've done this work on kind of how can tech be used to try and strengthen the arm of low-paid workers, which. I'm not at all a kind of tech person saying that's the answer to everything. But I think there was a missing bit of the jigsaw there. So we've kind of come in there and found this really interesting, quite dynamic, quite organised network of people who work in in different parts of the tech community, coders, programmers and so on, who who have got, who are civically minded, socially minded, who want to take part, many of whom are actually a bit bored of their employer, uh, and they're quite idealistic people mm-hmm. and want to find ways of bringing their skills to bear in, in, in new and interesting ways. And I'm incredibly open to the conversation about, well, how could I take part in some sort of organisation which is going to help better organise or improve the prospects of low-wage workers? I mean, that's been an incredibly easy conversation to have. You, know, you have to find the right way of organising it. and trying yeah. to, But it hasn't been like us going around trying to find people and no one wanting to talk to us. People are like, well, great, why didn't I know about this? Yeah, yeah. So I do think there is a community well. to be built. Um, and again, those people that I spoke to you know, in, in that kind of world, they were like, a trade union has never come to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I'm generalising, so but that's. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think there are, and I think we're starting to see that. But maybe it's just me who sees that, and <laughs> no one no, else. I've but always, I feel we're starting yeah. to see those connections. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would, I would agree with you on that one. We've, I've, people have started to come to me as well and say, "We've got an idea for this. What do you think about it? How does it kind of work? And how would it work for unions and yeah. from the tech sector?" or people who've got ideas for certain bits of tech. And I think some of them have come from the Bethnal Green Ventures thing that you've yep. done. Some people have come to me and said, I've got this idea. Yep. How do you feel about it? Um, and some of them will be really good, I think, and really interesting. So I think there is that openness there, but there's also that kind of 
what union do they join and how do they join the sure. union and how do we also reach them so that they can collectively organise? And... Well, partly, but I mean, it's the, the, there always used to be a maxim, which existed until very recently, which is, uh, which is the, mo- the reason why most people don't join unions is because they've never been asked. Mm. That's kind of fallen out of favour a little bit these days, but, it's, it, it, but, it, but it, seems, it seems from what you're saying, Gavin, and I, I also identify with this, is, is that we, the trade union movement, are not asking the right people for mm. the right things, mm. except the right people tend to be civic-minded people who are perhaps outside the movement, the, the formal structures of the movement at the moment, rather than the non-members who are clearly within the, well, lab, the labour movement. I mean, how many unions have coders within their union? Well, as, in, as in, like, as a job? Sure. How many unions? Have, I mean, on, on this issue, and this is not something you would go and sort of try and have a, I think, start a conversation with the British public about because people would look at you like, why is this geek asking me weird <laughs> things? But, but seriously, but how many kind of mass point. membership organisations which are really th- ambitious about their next thirty years would yeah. not have a chief technology officer? Yeah. I mean, literally, it is impossible in in other domains to think about that, and then you walk into the union movement, and you know, and that would be a high profile, yeah, powerful yeah. job, yeah. board level. Yeah making big decisions about the future strategy of their organisation. Yeah, yeah, I can name two, and one of them is on under the radar. Yeah, yeah, I think I would know the same ones. And that is and I, and that is a kind of, you know, that's a sort of, in a way, a sort of glib way of making the point. But I think there's a deeper point, which is, you know, in my sort of job working in public policy and talking to large employers, so often I'm having conversations about how do we use the data we've got, either about our customers or indeed about our staff, to, to change how we perform as an organisation and to, to, to make us sort of to give us a better fit for our future yeah. challenges yeah. that is not a conversation I have ever had with a trade union leader yet you have six and a half seven million members yeah. that you know a huge amount about and lots of other people in the world and you have a great understanding of the world of work you know more so than just about anyone else in the nation that is a prize resource that is not being marshaled, that data, to strengthen the arm of working people, whether or not they're members or not. And you know, what, what on earth am I talking about? Well, I think there are, can, I can imagine a world where you have unions or union-like organisations using all the data they've got to provide a personalised, if you like, sort of service to individual members so that when they turn up for a job, they know exactly, given their background what they've done before their skill set their gender and so on exactly what they should be getting in that job mm-hmm. they should be armed with that and this is one little example so many so many so many people talk to me and say well i'm you know, applying for this job and they say well they, they won't tell me what i should be paid it's not advertised yeah, yeah the employer has that advantage the the worker does not there's just lots of ways in which data can be used to tip the balance of power a bit yeah. and at the moment i don't think unions by and large see it as their job to be doing that work when it's exactly what a lot of the people in the workforce need to have on their side. They can't, they're not going to do it on their own. Yeah. That's for sure. And, and, and listeners will be talking to Vic Barlow, Assistant General Secretary at the National Education Union, later on in this series of podcasts on exactly that point about the detailed use of, use of data. And that will be a discussion well worth listening to. Um, Gavin, you, you, you've outlined some of the, the, the causes for cautious optimism. Uh, and possible way, 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 ways forward. Would you say overall then the glass is half empty or half full? Um, oh, which day of the week do you get me on? <laughs> so I, How I th- you today? Yeah, I feel no. What I definitely so I feel the challenges are very clear and the data sort of you can't escape them and the, and the, and, yeah. they, and we're heading one way at the moment. So that 
is a big dark cloud hanging over us. Um, the reason for both uh, a, a real sense of optimism and a kind of slight tinge of desperation, you might hear in my voice sometimes, is because I feel that we do have a moment of opportunity despite the fact everything's hard. Yeah. And if we don't seize it, it's going to get harder or worse again. So what is that moment of opportunity? I think we are an, somewhere not a million miles away from what most economists would call full employment. I know lots of people don't have jobs, but we're kind of, we've got a high employment economy. If we move into a recession and we have 10% unemployment, it will be so much harder, harder to make the progress that I think we need to make on working conditions, security and, of work and so on. Mm-hmm. That they, those are debates that we do better on and the union movement is better on when we, we've got high levels of, un, of employment, yeah. not low levels of employment. So there's that. I just think public attitudes have changed. I think there has been a period of, well, there's a long-term improvement in, in how people feel about unions, and I think young people particularly feel very differently to how people felt 20 years ago. But I think it, over the more recent years, there has been a public reaction against managerial overreach. I mean, bad management overreach. Mm. I think we've seen time and time again examples of crap working conditions and aggressive unpleasant managerial styles and I think there is a bit of a counter reaction to that which creates a moment of opportunity which I think is there I think there is a change in the kind of the mindset of the courts in this country which we've seen a number of ways how long that lasts for I don't know so I think it's incredibly hard to make this case because people sort of say oh my god have you not seen the legal environment out there it's quite hostile for unions have you not seen austerity or yes that's true I know all about that but there are things out there which makes me think that the kind of if you like union arguments are closer to where the public is at in lots of ways than has been the case before and might be the case again if the economic cycle changes. Mm. So I think there are. this is the time to be trying to do stuff. And if union membership falls further, it's not going to get any easier. Yeah. So carpe diem. Yeah. Gavin, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, thank Gavin. You. So coming up next, Simon went to speak to Angela Eagle, who's one of our Uni's 21 patrons, on her new book uh, by Biteback Publishing. The New Serfdom, which she's written with her colleague Imran. And The New Serfdom examines why, in the UK, so many people feel left behind and no longer believe that politics can provide the solutions, which is really resonant to us here at Unis 21 because of the research we've done around young professional workers. And the kind of upshot of that was nobody really trusts politicians of any stripe uh, with the solutions they need for going forward. So take a listen. And I tell you what, her knowledge is encyclopedic. So enjoy. Angela Eagle, thank you very much indeed for spending time with the Unions 21 podcast uh, to pleasure, talk pleasure. about your new book that you've co authored with Imran Ahmed. The New Serfdom, listeners, if you haven't seen the reviews, seen it on Twitter. A- A- Angela, y- the title intrigued yeah. me. What, why are we serfs? That's a very definite kind of concept and, and word to use. Well, the, the whole of the concept of the book is trying to bring forward into people's consciousness the results of 40 years of domination of our economic and political scene by an Austrian economist who was called Frederick Hayek, who wrote in 1944, he published a book called The Road to Serfdom. And in it, he characterised all collectivism as beginning on the road to serfdom and said that democratic socialists were akin to Nazis because they were uh, into collective action rather than individual liberty. And he put that in a very provocative way at the height of the 
uh, response to the Nazis in the war when we had really a sort of collectivist approach to how we organised our economy. And so the premise of the book is that after 40 years of domination of his extreme libertarian market fundamentalist ideas, we've ended up paradoxically with a new serfdom. It's certainly happening in the labour market where there are increasing numbers of people in very unfulfilling, low-paid jobs that they can't escape from, and that there's more than one type of way to be a serf. Well, in, indeed, except I suppose our, our experience, as you say, built up in successive waves over the last 40, 40 years. Yeah, interesting, his ideas uh, were immediately taken up by the Tory party. Uh, they were they were immediately res- found resonance there. So Churchill's Gestapo speech, his infamous speech at the height of the 1945 general election, which followed the war, in which he said that the uh, that Attlee would inevitably create a kind of Gestapo if you had a socialist government, directly based on Hayek's ideas. And so the Conservative Party, from that moment on, has been pretty affected by Hayek's extreme libertarianism and his market fundamentalist ideas. And obviously the real, the real disciple of the guru was Margaret Thatcher, who began that long trek towards um, putting into law Hayek's ideas and his belief that the only way of distributing anything and making decisions was via market mechanisms. In, in, in the book, you're, you're very kind about the role of Unions 21 and about the importance of union organising Generally, I mean, thank you for that. But what is it in your well, view? Well, I, I believe it. Well, uh, <laughs> so, Angela, Angela, we know you believe it. In my um, experience, it's true. Um, but what is it about the union movement that 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 it does that that other social groups or other forms of organisation cannot do or do not do? What makes it so special in your view? Well, it's special because it is a collective expression of the. Uh, economic and political aspirations of working people that is allows their views and their needs and desires to be taken account of in an economic and a political situation. So trade unions at their best look after the interests of uh, their particular workforce. The, the old cliche, it, it, the trade unions brought you the weekend. Bank uh, holidays. Bank holidays, definitely. All of that, uh, higher wages. And, of course, Hayek knew this, and he absolutely loathed trade unions. He was very, very explicit about his hatred of trade unions. He called them this cancer. He wanted them to be completely expunged from a working uh, economy, and he was particularly nasty about the British trade unions because during the time when he was writing and influencing Margaret Thatcher in particular, the unions were very powerful. He accused them of doing the very things that they exist to eliminate, causing unemployment, um, causing uh, lower wages than would be the case, all completely wrong, all completely opposite to the truth. Uh, he thought that markets were more important than democracy, and he was very explicit in his admiration for Pinochet in Chile at the time uh, when Salvador Allende was actually overthrown. He rejoiced because he thought that Pinochet would introduce a more market fundamentalist system and that democracy was nice to have but not essential. And Allende was actually executed by the incoming government. He so, was, yeah. So and, and, and markets over human life, fine. Absolutely. He was very extreme in his... He had a very narrow view of liberty. Uh, And, of course, he never discussed the fact that markets 
actually don't take account of the needs of people that don't have money to make their demand real in a market system. He didn't take account of the fact that in human nature we are collective creatures. We like to have friends. We like to have a, a wider social circle. We're not a series of individuals that just agglomerate our needs together with, in constant competition with each other. And of course, solidarity and working together, those kinds of values are democratic socialist values, and they're the values of the trade union movement at its best. So, so really, there may be other collective organisations from the Women's Institute to the National Trust, but actually, it's only the trade union movement that is the absolute antithesis of, of the reactionary forces that, that Hayek and others... Yes, I mean, they, they, they don't have that aspiration for a better politics to share uh, a, a fairer society, to ensure that the rewards of growth go to, to labour uh, as well as capital. And, of course, since the trade unions have been shackled, not only in this country but in other Western countries, America specifically, we've seen the rewards to ownership and capital increase far more than the rewards to labour. And in fact, if the if the same ratios had uh, as we achieved in the 70s, the 60s and 70s had um, been in play now, then in America the uh, wages would be 40% higher, and in Britain they'd be 20% higher. And those are really significant figures, I think, listeners. If you recall, of course, that the 1970s was the most equal decade yep. uh, in in in. British history, recorded British history, in terms of the, gar- the, the, the narrowing of the gap between the, the richest and the poorest, and now that gap has widened to. And by the way, it didn't. It huge. didn't compromise capitalism. I mean, the, America ran with uh, income tax rates of as high as ninety-eight percent between eighty and ninety-eight percent from the war all the way through to the 1980s when Reagan first made the huge tax cut under the influence of the market fundamentalists. Similarly, in Britain, a similar level of income tax thresholds for those who are well off until Mrs Thatcher cut them in the first Lawson budget and then top executive pay let rip because they could keep the rewards. Whereas if you had tax rates that high, then the rewards of having remuneration for executives that were that high just were never received. So as soon as you take those tax rates down, what happens is this acceleration of the differences between the top 1% and the rest. The description of, of the problems and the challenges we face, as I say, is, is, you know, is, is exceptionally well written, if I may say so, and has been very, very, well, been, been very well received. But for those who haven't read the, read the book, can you summarise in a sentence or two what the remedy is? Well, the remedy, firstly, is to recognise some of the absurd foundations of this market fundamentalist view of the world, which have become baked into everybody's assumptions. The, the, the assumptions that markets are always and everywhere perfect, that somehow if you're rich you can be rewarded by being paid more, but if you're poor you have to be paid less so that you'll work harder, that somehow there's merit in itself in being rich rather than poor and therefore blame in being poor, that markets always work and never malfunction, that there's perfect information, that economic man, this model that the classic economic theories that Hayek used, somehow the only way of analysing value, all of these things are rubbish 
but they've been baked into everybody's assumptions. And part of the book is to to bring some of these premises out into the open and say, look, this is absurd. And it actually leads to the kind of society we're seeing now, where we've got massive increases in loneliness and mental illness because people are not encouraged to have a collective view. We don't have a society that where one person is encouraged to care about another and this is somehow presented to us as if it's human nature and the natural law of the market but markets are embedded in the values of the societies they operate in so we can choose to have a different form of market system that's much more uh, likely to lead to a more equal and sustainable society both socially and environmentally And so I think that's what the book tries to say. Let's examine these hegemonic ideas of Frederick Hayek and reveal them for the absurdities that they are and go from there to look at the possibilities of applying democratic socialist values, which we define as equality, a belief in democracy and liberty, cooperation and internationalism to the world's problems in the 21st century to make those choices because it, those is, choices. it is a choice it's not a tablet of stone exactly if you're told that the market is a natural law and there's no other way of distributing decisions or outcomes then you don't challenge precisely the things that you should be challenging which is why does it take three days for uh, the captains of the 100 top companies in the FTSE to earn in those three days what it takes workers to earn all year that doesn't seem to me to be a very sustainable approach to remuneration and fairness. And, and with the publication of your book and, and almost the simultaneous publication, I'm not suggesting there's any connection other than, than chronologically, um, of the report by the Resolution Foundation about intergenerational tensions, yeah. um, do you think that perhaps we are now approaching a tipping point in favour of a, a fairer society? Do you think that you know, these, these are things, these, these are tectonic plates almost that are coming together and will produce a change? I think we've got to a stage where we've got a society that's increasingly unsustainable environmentally, but particularly socially and economically. The crash demonstrated that. But the aftermath of the crash hasn't been major reform of the system. It's been a reinforcement of some of those market fundamentalist ideas. We cannot carry on in that way if we're going to create a stable, more fair system. And so the time now is to start looking at some of these assumptions that have held sway for far too long for 40 years uh, in our society and start overturning them. You can only do that by getting these ideas out into the open and examining whether they're useful for the whole of humanity and the sustainability of our resource use in the planet, a more holistic view of the kind of society that we want. And it's clearly the case that they're not. If you look at what's happening with uh, tax havens and the offshoring of wealth, the fact that many of the huge tech tech companies that now dominate uh, our economy are minimising their tax uh, liabilities by choosing between one country and another and profit shifting. So they're, they're really being parasitical on everybody's state sector. And we're in a period in Britain after the crash where we've got a Conservative government which is minimising the size of the state What I say and what we say in the book is that we need an empowering state that's going to help recreate an economy that will make us prosperous in the 21st century where we're on the cusp of huge technological change and the fourth industrial revolution. But we also need to uh, have systems that allow us to collect 
the taxes that are due from companies, to collect the taxes that are due from individuals, that do not allow individuals to just offshore all their profits, uh, and, and really uh, live parasitically on the states in which they operate. You cannot recreate the services and the education and the goods and the infrastructure that we need to run our economy in the future if you don't have a decent way of collecting taxes. And Thomas Piketty, in his book Capital, demonstrated that because the returns to growth are now lower than the returns to capital, what is happening is just an ongoing concentration of wealth in the top few percent of the whole world. And that will not stop mathematically unless you do something like tax it. It's not rocket science. No, it's not. No rocket science. Um, Angela, can I ask you just a, a question about, about the process of, of writing the book? Because most people would think, well, writing a book is almost a monastic type of... Yeah, you know, there, are, there, there is but, a monastic but, element to but, it, but, it's true. But, but you, you've co-authored a book with, with, with Imran. What, was, what yeah. was the process of, of that like in terms of the two of you working in tandem? Was it, was it easier than you thought, more difficult? It was easier than I thought it might be, um, but we get on well. I mean, we worked together before. Imran used to work for Hillary Benn, and then he worked for me. And uh, after the last election, we decided that we'd do a positive project and talk about some of the things that we talked about and try and get them down on paper. And it, we, we, we met a few times, but not that often, because you can pass people's writing around and rewrite and say what you think and do all of that. And it worked really well. It, it, we, we agreed on a lot of things. We didn't have any big rows about it. Great. Well, well readers, the new serfdom by Angela Eagle and Im Imran Ahmed is uh, published on Biteback Press. It's available in all good booksellers and, of course, from online retailers as well. Angela Eagle, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. I look forward to the sequel, The New Freedom, ho <laughs> hopefully in only a few years' time. You never know. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Yeah. What did you think? You were gutted not to be there, I know. <laughs> I was really gutted, actually, with missing Angela's because, as you said before, she has got an encyclopedic knowledge on all of these sort of issues, and it's just fascinating to hear her talk. I just love, I'd love, I'd, I love the sight lines, if you like. Yeah. She's got you know, the way she can you know, plot a course from, from Hayek and you know, almost like the end of the Second World War and then right the way up to today. Anyway... So what have we got on the stocks, Becky? We're coming into a bit of a, a busy period. We're about to launch our new commission on Collective Voice, which is a big project for the next 18 months on what what is Collective Voice for the 21st century and how can unions talk about it and what do we all think about being at work and having and all working together. And that will be a common theme through the next series of podcasts that will run through through the autumn, I guess. It will indeed, yes. As ever, uh, li listeners, it's been our pleasure to have you with us for this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you have, or even if you haven't, then do email us and let us know what you think. Info at unions21.org.uk. We want your views. We'd love your input into the discussion. We'd love your, your suggestions for what areas we should consider next, people that you'd like to hear us grill. And uh, if you do like us, please spend some time on your uh, podcast platform, rating, commenting, reviewing, and trying to get other people to listen. Absolutely. We, we couldn't do it without you, that's, that's for sure. So uh, until the next podcast, which will be in about three weeks' time, I think, this, this time, a little, a little longer, longer. I've got a half-term holiday, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, is, this is me, Simon Saff, saying thanks for listening. And me, Becky Wright. And goodbye. Bye.
Business 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. The production assistant was Henry Skews. It was a Makes You Think production.